I'm a bit of a productivity junkie. I taught a whole course on productivity at Criswell College several years ago. Loved reading and studying and going deep on the topic of productivity. I love planning my week. I even make a plan for when I will plan my week. I am obnoxious about it. Susie tells me this often. I can be too consumed with efficiency of time and wanting to get everything done that needs to get done in just the right way, just the right time. And I always uh, end up feeling like, and I think this is true for pastors, but for anybody really, that there's always something more to do. And I'm always struggling that even though I've planned my work really well, I feel like I have, and I've planned my weeks out, and I've allotted appropriate amounts of time for everything, that I'm still not getting everything done that I want to get done. Do you ever feel that way, that you're still not getting everything done that you would like to get done? There's just always more, isn't there? Sometimes we feel like we're behind the eight ball, and we're never going to catch up with our work. We're consumed with anxiety about how we're going to get all the stuff done we have to get done. Sometimes we get so stressed about how much we have to do that we just throw in the towel when we binge the latest Netflix series. Amen? Thank you for your honesty. I'm not alone in that. Good. The amount of things we have to do can be and is overwhelming. But God, in His mercy, has actually designed us so that we would get more done by doing less. God has designed you to get more done by doing less. God didn't make us to reflect His glory on the earth, to represent His rule on the earth by being stressed and anxious all the time, by being overwhelmed by work all the time. He made us in a way, to work in a way that reveals His character and blesses the world, not in a way that reflects a mild, low-level frustration all the time. We usually seek to carry out our work while neglecting one of the most important things God has given us to do the work that He's made us to do. We struggle to rest. We try to work without rest. I've told several folks over the last few months that my sabbatical over the summer turned me into an evangelist for rest. You don't know how good rest is until you really rest. And once you've tasted the goodness of something, you want others to taste it too. On my sabbatical, I had this big grand plan I planned my work for my sabbatical, imagine that, (laughs) to read all this stuff on the end times and some other things. Um, But when, at the beginning of my sabbatical, I asked my counselor if there was one book I must read while I was on sabbatical. He pointed me to this book by Peter Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. The Emotionally Healthy Leader. There's a chapter in this book called Practicing Sabbath Delight, and it changed my life. It's not like I'd never heard of Sabbath before. 
It's not like I hadn't even attempted to do it myself. But it was by far one of the best and most helpful things I read during my sabbatical. I want to give you a little taste of what Scazzaro says about Sabbath in this chapter. He says, quote, Christian leaders can't stop because they're terrified. They're frightened to death of what they'll see inside themselves if they slow down. And I think that applies to all of you, not just Christian leaders. He says, something so much deeper is driving us, we just have no idea what it is. He says, on Sabbath, for a brief moment, a brief moment in time, we reorient ourselves away from this world and all of its brokenness and anticipate the world to come, how things on earth are meant to be. In a very real sense, the practice of Sabbath joins heaven and earth, equipping us not merely to rest from our work, but also to work from our rest. He says there are some things God can deposit into our souls only when we unplug completely from work and rest. Some of you are like, man, my prayer life is just struggling. My scripture intake is struggling. I'm feeling so far from the Lord. There are some things God can deposit into your soul only when you unplug completely from work and rest. A couple more. He says, quote, Sabbath is the one day of the week I most believe and live out a fundamental truth of the gospel. How? I do nothing productive, and yet I am utterly loved. Then he says, if we do not keep the Sabbath, we are incurring a deficit, and God himself will stop us through a crisis, a health issue, an emergency, or anything that gets our attention. On this point, in his book, Reset, David Murray quotes another author saying, quote, If we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath, our pneumonia, our cancer, our heart attack, our accidents create Sabbath for us, end quote. The point is that not having a regular routine of rest is, as another pastor says, a death style, not a lifestyle. There are consequences if we decide to live our lives according to our wisdom rather than God's. My sabbatical was God's kindness in showing me that I have consistently for decades neglected one of the most basic commands of God and consistently not received one of the most beautiful gifts from God, namely a regular routine of Sabbath rest. Now all of this sounds good in principle, but is it biblical? Is any of this in the Bible? Is taking a day to rest a modern self-help technique or an ancient God-given gift. As we continue our study of Genesis, we are coming to chapter 2. Hallelujah. (laughs) It's been a while. We will pick up the pace eventually. Chapter 2, we begin. So if you want to begin making your way to Genesis chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first three verses this morning. We're going to learn there that 
a rhythm of rest is, is woven into the very fabric of the created order. Verses 1 through 3 tell us what happens on the seventh day in the world's history. Let's read these verses, look at them, and then I'll close making several applications towards how we can practice Sabbath rest. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 1, you'll notice, is a summarizing statement to chapter 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 2, 1, the heavens and the earth were finished. What God started, He has now finished. God always finishes what He begins. Christian, he will finish the work he began in your life. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's work never stalls out. God's work in your life will never come to an end until he's done. He never quits on the job of making you more like Jesus and he will not quit on bringing you and bringing you safely home. God always finishes what he begins, whether creation or redemption. That's verse 1. It's pretty straightforward. But then verse 2, it's amazing in verse 2 how nonchalantly Moses says, God finished his work that he had done. And then verse 3, how nonchalantly Moses says, all his work, all God's work that he had done in creation. The one true and living God has just spoken an entire universe into existence. He's formed it and filled it, made all of its constituent parts, everything from atoms to atom, from planets to people, from Jupiter to junipers, from the Milky Way to megalodons, from supernova, uh, supernovas to slugs, from dark matter to Dalmatians, from black holes to blackberries. He's made all of this, and Moses sums it up by saying, God finished his work he had done. <laughs> God finished his work he had done in creation. It'd be like spending four grueling years to get your college degree, and then your biographer one day summarizes those years by saying, they finished college. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> you would hope there was more to be said, wouldn't you? What's going on here? Well, commentator Gordon Wenham points out that this brevity is meant to, quote, evoke the silent awe that is appropriate before the grandeur of the work that has been accomplished. In other words, Moses 
doesn't need to say much because the magnificence of what God created speaks for itself. We are made to look at what God made with the same kind of quiet and humble reverence, the kind of behavior that art galleries require. Come in and you enjoy, you take a step back and you look, but you aren't joking around. You're humbly in awe. God's power and nature and glory is everywhere seen in what He's made. My question for you is, do you see it? Do you see it? Or more specifically, do you consistently put yourself in a position where you can see it? God's power and glory and divine nature is everywhere seen in creation. Do you ever put yourself in a position where you can see it and enjoy it? And praise God for it. One of the ways we can do this is by setting aside regular time every week to be refreshed by the goodness of God's creation. This pattern of regular rest is woven, as I said, into the very fabric of creation. As it says here in verse 2, God himself punctuated the first week with a day of rest. On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested. God didn't rest because He was tired. He's God, He doesn't get tired. God rested on the seventh day out of celebration, out of exhilaration, not exhaustion, out of triumph, not tiredness. He was so pleased with what he'd made that he wanted to step back and enjoy it. So on the seventh day of world history, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit inhaled the satisfaction of a job well done. God rested on the seventh day. In verse 2, this Hebrew word for God rested can mean three different things. It can mean to cease to be, to desist from work, or to observe the Sabbath. Cease to be, desist from work, or observe the, uh, observe the Sabbath. The second sense is the, the, clearly the meaning here. God isn't ceasing to exist, and the Sabbath isn't explicitly mentioned here. But it seems clear that the Sabbath idea is on Moses' Moses's mind, even if not mentioned by name. The word for work here. It's used twice in verse 2, once in verse 3. The word for work is the word for ordinary human work. It's the kind of work an Israelite would do when they plow up a field or bake bread. Ordinary human work. This is really interesting because Moses is using a word to describe the kind of work we do to describe a very different kind of work God just did by creating an entire universe out of nothing through his word. He's using the same word. Moses likely chose this word to indicate that man, like God, should stop his work on the seventh day. And we also know that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. So it's safe to say that he has the Sabbath in mind when he writes 2, 1 through 3, because later in the Ten Commandments, the passage I already read a few moments ago, he says that the Sabbath idea goes back to creation itself. I want you to see this, so if you want to see this explicitly, find Exodus 20 again. 
Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then he gives some instructions about it. It's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, there are lots of several instructions and qualifiers about the Sabbath. You don't get that with most of the other commandments. But then verse 11. For, remember the Sabbath day, verse 8. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Moses is rooting the command of the Sabbath in this creative, or cre- this creative intention that God on the seventh day of creation rested from his work. So Moses, I, th- I think, is indirectly, subtly saying when God's people practice Sabbath, they're reflecting and revealing something of God himself. Just as we would want to obey the other commands like not lying or not stealing not committing adultery, we're revealing something of God's character, something of His integrity. So also, when we cease from our ordinary work, just as God did, we are revealing something of God's character rooted in the creation story itself. Now, verse 3 is striking to me. I didn't see verse 3 until I really looked at it for a while. Verse 3 in chapter 2 is really important. There's two striking statements that continue to suggest that God, through Moses, has the Sabbath in mind for the seventh day. Verse 3 says that God blessed the seventh day and that God made it holy. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, the seventh day isn't called the Sabbath here. He's not calling it the Sabbath. But he does bless it and hallow it or declare it holy. Both of which are, as one commentator says, striking terms to apply to a day. Blessing is not usually applied to inanimate things like a day. It's not clear exactly how a day can be blessed. But it is clear that God blessed this day. Back in chapter 1, God's blessing on the animals and humans meant that they would be fruitful and multiply themselves. Chapter 1, verse 22, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, man and woman. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So blessing in chapter 1 has indicated fruitfulness and multiplication. And then all of a sudden, chapter 2, verse 3, this day is blessed. This day is blessed. Now, I may be spiritualizing the text here. You can rebuke me afterwards. I'll receive it. But I find it very interesting that since about three months now, Susie and I have started practicing a regular Sabbath, I've been able to get more done in less time. There's been a fruitfulness and multiplication in my work. During my sabbatical, my reading, my writing, my praying, exercising, family time, were all more fruitful. As I leaned into rest, a fruitfulness and multiplication happened in my life. God blesses animals, they multiply. God blesses humans, they multiply. 
God blesses a day. Maybe because it is meant to multiply what we do on the other six days. Then he says that the text says that he made it holy, blessed it, and hallowed it. Hallowed it. The day that God stops working is the day that he blesses. Now, it may be blessed because it's holy, or it may be that God intends to bless those who observe the Sabbath. Again, it's unusual for a day to be declared holy. God is holy. In the Old Testament, anything described as holy derives its holiness by being chosen by God and given to him in a prescribed way. So utensils in the tabernacle were holy. Sacrifices were holy. The priesthood was holy. Even ground could be holy, like at the burning bush. Anything described as holy in the Old Testament derives its holiness from God. It's not intrinsically holy. It's declared holy because it's been chosen by God and given back to God in a prescribed way. The seventh day is the first thing in the Bible to be declared holy. The first thing that receives a status that belongs to God alone is a day. What do you make of that? The first thing that God hallows is a day. It might mean that neglecting a regular rhythm of rest is profaning something that God has made sacred. This language of blessing and holiness applied to the seventh day alerts us to a sacredness, a specialness, a uniqueness of the seventh day. Though the Sabbath isn't mentioned explicitly here, I hope I've been able to make clear that there are lots of textual pointers from God through Moses for us to see and prepare us for what will come later in the Ten Commandments, namely the Sabbath command. Moses, in other words, wasn't just pulling a Sabbath idea out of thin air. God wasn't giving to Moses on Mount Sinai an arbitrary command, but rather something more fundamental, something more sacred, already woven into the created order. God rested after working. He blessed and hallowed the seventh day. Moses says this is the reason for the fourth commandment. That brings us to the rest of our sermon where we're going to do some application. How do these Old Testament principles and laws apply to Christians today? More specifically, are Christians commanded to keep the Sabbath? Are Christians commanded to keep the Sabbath? Interestingly, the Sabbath command is the only one of the Ten Commandments not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. What is made explicit is that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath laws for us. I think it's worth turning here. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, I think this would be good for you to see with your own eyes. Hebrews chapter 4, it's in your New Testament. The writer of Hebrews gives a bit of an extended discussion on rest and how it applies to us in Christ. Let's start... In verse 2, <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 2, For good news came to us, just as to them, 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed the gospel enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he was... He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting Genesis 2. Verse 5, and again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95 that we read earlier. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David... So long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For, verse 8, this is super important. For, if Joshua had given them, the people of God, rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Jesus' work is for our eternal rest. That's the point of Hebrews 4. There's a lot of Old Testament quotations. It's a bit dense. The writer is saying that in, in the gospel, those who believe the gospel, you are brought into a day of rest, a a Sabbath rest, a day where you cease from working yourself to God. You don't have to try to work yourself to God anymore. You can rest in Christ's work, in Christ's work alone. You can cease from working just as God did. Verse 10, Jesus, by working hard to live a perfect life, and then by laying down his life for our sins, Raising from the dead on the third day, he fulfilled the law, including the Sabbath law, and grants eternal rest to everyone who puts their trust in him and turns away from their sins. Those who know that they can't work their way into heaven are given God's rest. And is there any better kind of rest? Can you imagine how restful God is? He's not in a hurry. He's not stressed about anything. He's not worried or anxious. He's God. And and something of what he has can be yours if you're in Christ. If you turn away from your work and put your hope in Christ, you can have what's his, namely eternal rest. We say when someone dies, may he rest in peace, may she rest in peace. I don't particularly like that. Kind of a cliche, means very little. But for the Christian, when a Christian dies, you literally enter rest. Eternal rest. God's rest. I wonder if you remember Jesus' offer from Matthew 11. Do you remember what Jesus says? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' call for you to come to him to find rest, Christian, is before his command to you to go and make disciples of all the nations. We have to get the order right here. Jesus calls us to himself and then commissions us out. Jesus calls us to be in him before we do for him. So, hyperactivity for Jesus isn't as spiritual as you might think it is. The person who's stressing themselves out all the time, even doing good things for Jesus, might actually be be neglecting the thing, the one they say they're serving. Jesus calls us to be for him before we do for him. We do out of who we are. We serve out of what we have in him. Notice also in this Matthew 11 call, come and I'll give you rest. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask us if we have a good reason for being tired. (laughs) Let's be honest. We're all tired. I was with my family yesterday. My kids were being kids. And my brother was like, how you doing, man? I was like, dude, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm tired. And if you know my brother Josh, some of you know Josh, he's like, dude, shut up, we're all tired. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> I received that. Maybe it's our fault we're so tired and weary and overwhelmed and anxious and stressed all the time. Maybe it's your fault that you're in that place. Maybe you've said yes to way too many things. And you have no ability to say no. Interestingly, though, Jesus has called Matthew 11. Has no qualification. Here's what's so beautiful. Jesus wants us to come to him for rest no matter how we got tired. He calls all tired people to him. No matter whose fault it is or why they're tired. He just says, if you need rest, come to me. So whether you're working hard to make your life look amazing and be super mom or super dad or super employee or super church member, no matter how hard you're working or whether you're working hard to make your life look better than it actually is, you're laboring or maybe you're finding yourself weighed down by things beyond your control. That's that word heavy laden. You're weighed down by circumstances that you have no control over. Either way, Jesus says, come, come. I have what you need. I'll give you rest. He sees you. He understands where you're at, what you're doing, what you've done, what's been done to you. And his heart is tender and welcoming and willing and open to receive you. The only thing you have to do is be honest with yourself and stop pretending. Stop pretending that you're not tired when your soul is exhausted. Stop pretending that you're Superman or Superwoman And be honest with yourself and with him and go to him. And you don't have to pay anything for his rest. He says, I will give you rest. So Jesus' rest is a gift, not a transaction. Come and I'll give it to you. He doesn't say, you know, get your life together. He doesn't even say, hey, start taking a Sabbath day. He doesn't say, be on your best behavior 
and I'll give you rest. He just says, come on, if you want rest, come on, I'll give it to you. It's free. And some of you need that rest. And I'm not talking necessarily here about physical rest. We're going to get to that in a moment. I'm talking about the kind of rest your soul needs. Jesus needs your, Jesus says, I will give you rest for your soul. The kind of rest many of you need is a soul rest. You are anxious about your soul. Your soul is tired and weary. You are tired of trying to be good enough. You are tired of trying to fit in. You're tired of no one seeing you or acknowledging you your dignity, your value, or your worth. Jesus sees you, and he says, come. Just, just come. And I'll give you that soul rest that you need. Or as he says in John 4, I'll give you the kind of water from a kind of well that never runs dry. So, while it's clear, we go back to our question. That was a bit of an excursus that God's Sabbath rest is only found by coming to Jesus in faith, it's not as clear what Christians should do with the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. It is clear that Jesus is our Sabbath. It's not so clear what we should do with the Sabbath. I think there are two things in the New Testament that are clear. Maybe more, I just picked two. But at least two things are clear in the New Testament about the Sabbath. One, it's a gift from God. Two, it's a disputable matter amongst Christians, meaning Christians are free to disagree upon it. Number one, it's a gift from God. Jesus says in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for us. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In this verse, Jesus is interpreting for the Pharisees a passage he just quoted to them about David eating the bread from the tabernacle when he was hungry. Jesus is saying that though they knew the letter of the story, they didn't understand its spirit. And he's saying the same was true of their understanding of the Sabbath. They, the Pharisees, were making the Sabbath a burden instead of a blessing. So Jesus tells them that the Sabbath is a gift from God. The Sabbath was made for man. The rabbis, the Pharisees, had taken this gift and repackaged it, adding all kinds of laws, making it a burden instead of a blessing. The work it took to keep all the uh, regulations undermined the point of the Sabbath. The rabbis' version of the Sabbath made people tired when, when God wanted to give people rest. So Jesus says plainly, the Sabbath is made for you. The Sabbath is not for the Pharisees. It's not for the religious leaders. The Sabbath is a gift for God's people. You weren't made for the Sabbath. It was made for you. So we see this clearly in the New Testament. The Sabbath is a gift from God. The second thing we see clearly about the Sabbath is that it's a disputable matter, meaning it's an issue where Christians are free to disagree upon its application. Paul addresses this issue in at least two places. He says in Romans 14, 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then later in the passage he says, Anything not done from faith is sin. And then in Colossians 2, 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, This goes back to last week, by the way. Whether you're a 
omnivore, carnivore, herbivore. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's Colossians 2.16. In other words, Christians shouldn't judge one another if you have differing views on the Sabbath. Doesn't mean you can't ever talk about it. It just means that you shouldn't judge one another and elevate one position over another. For example, some Christians have taught historically that Sunday, which is the first day of the week, not the seventh, that Sunday is now the new Christian Sabbath. But as a church, we believe that binds the conscience in a way that the Bible doesn't. So we don't teach that Sunday is a new Sabbath day. But if you believe that Sunday is the Sabbath day, more power to you. Practice it. Do it. For your good and God's glory. But you can't require other church members to believe the same or practice the same way or make them feel bad if they don't agree with you. That would be bringing division into the body of Christ unnecessarily. So those in Christ are free to apply the Sabbath laws in ways that are appropriate to them. We're free from the specifics of the Old Testament commands as far as there's so many commands about do the Sabbath this way, don't do it this way, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. We're free from those things, but this doesn't mean we're free to ignore the wisdom of God. This doesn't mean we're free to ignore a principle set forth in the very week of creation. This doesn't mean we're free to ignore the seventh day or a Sabbath day. Pursuing a pattern of regular rest is wise, not slavish law-keeping. Pastor Adam Mabry says it this way. He says, if you're concerned that by embracing regular Sabbath rest, you're in danger of coming under some harsh legalism, simply ask yourself how not observing Sabbath rest is going for you. It's not rest that threatens to oppress you, but your refusal to. End quote. So maybe I could offer a few words of counsel or help. When should we Sabbath? When should you Sabbath? Well, whenever you think you should. Whenever's best for you and your family. Find what works for you and your family and your stage of life, understanding that those things might change. It's super important to bring other brothers and sisters in Christ into that conversation. Let others speak into that, hear your ideas, encourage you, admonish you. Don't let this just be a private decision, but let it be something you receive help and counsel on. For me, it was through reading books and then talking to people about it. It could be the same with you. And it was initially me who started digging into this over sabbatical, but then I quickly brought this to Susie. Um, our family's planner. And I was like, Susie, we got to do this more regularly. We got to do this more intentionally. We've kind of sort of been trying, but it's not anywhere consistent or it has really zero structure around it. So we got to do something. We got to make a plan. So we did. We made a plan for our Sabbath. We started about three months ago and it served us really, really well. It's not a law. We tweak it. We have tweaked it and we will tweak it as we go along. Um, Scazzaro 
says make a container for your Sabbath. Put something, put it in something, put around some, put something around it. Put some guardrails there. So here's Susie and I's Sabbath plan. I'll just read you a bit of this. Yes, I'm a nerd. I wrote it up and emailed it to my wife. <laughs> Pretty sure she read it. Once a week, we commit to spending a 24-hour period of time stopping from work, enjoying rest, delighting in God's creation, and contemplating God. We will cease from all work, paid and unpaid. We will engage in activities that restore and replenish us. We will do things that bring us joy and delight. We will draw closer to God by thinking about Him and recognizing His work in our lives and in His world. A lot of this is right out of Schizero, by the way. This is not my bright idea. What must we do to protect our ability to Sabbath? How will we make this day different than every other day and different than merely taking a day off? This was huge for me. Sabbath is not the same as taking a day off, necessarily. I have four things. On our Sabbath, we will not check email or respond to texts or calls unless it is a true emergency. We will not look at social media accounts and limit screen time as much as possible. By the way, I'm not policing my wife on this, okay? I'm not the Sabbath police. I'm not a new, I'm not a new scribe or Pharisee. But we do have conversations along the way about how we're doing this stuff. We will not run errands or do household chores, meaning you have to plan your week. Hey, when are you going to do the laundry? Saturday, my day off. Well, that's work. Why not do it on an evening or some other time during the week instead of on your Sabbath? We will not talk about or engage in any work-related task. This is super hard because our lives are consumed with ministry. There's always something to debrief. And Susie has to tell me, stop it, John. Stop it, John. Stop it, John. And what's beautiful about this is it's creating something in our marriage where we're getting to know each other our relationship is starting to form more around who we are, not just what I do. On our Sabbath, we will take naps, read books, take walks, hikes, swim, eat good food. On our Sabbath, we will have fun through playing sports or games. I'm trying to learn how to play tennis. It's ridiculous. Don't ask me to go play tennis unless, <laughs> unless you want to embarrass your pastor. Watching good movies, hanging out with close friends, visiting places we might like to visit locally, going on dates with each other. On our Sabbath, we will read our Bibles, pray, journal, spend time in silence and solitude, and rest in the presence of God and His love for us. This has proved helpful for us. This is not what you have to do. When should you Sabbath? Whenever works for you. Whenever works for you. When can you do this? And what should you do? Well, some of the things I've already mentioned that we try to do, do anything that's not work. This doesn't mean inactivity. It means do something that's not part of your regular work. And I have three children. Susie and I have three children. You don't get to, like, lock your kids in a room while you Sabbath. Okay? So there's daily responsibilities that come with raising other human beings. But we've found, we're trying to find, and have found some ways around some of the daily chores and the daily grind that make one day a week, Monday, more restful. 
one of the stated purposes of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was refreshment. Exodus 23, 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, servant woman and the alien, so that they may be refreshed. It's interesting that he threw that in there. So that they may be refreshed. God gives the Sabbath to refresh us. So if you're exhausted physically and emotionally, it may be because that you're not tapping into the gift that God has given you to charge your batteries. God doesn't want you to be miserable all the time. He wants to refresh you. So do things that aren't work. Second, worship. Worship when you rest. Sabbath is a time of rest holy to the Lord. It's a holy day. It's a day set apart. Sabbath means setting apart time to rest in and with the Lord. It doesn't mean read your Bible all day, though if you want to, go ahead. It doesn't mean sit in silence and solitude all day, though if you want to, go ahead. It does mean that at some point, you should probably open your Bible. Read it and pray and sit and listen and think and be with the Lord. Binging on Netflix on your day off is not Sabbathing. Pursue things that will fill your soul, not numb your mind. And this is where we're all different. What fills your soul? What fuels your soul? Pursue those things on your Sabbath. Now, you may be objecting that you, there's no way you can do this. You don't have the time. You don't have the ability. You don't have a situation that would allow for something like this. And that may be true. I'm sure there are situations where this is just not possible. I think this might be why this is not a command repeated in the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament is written to Gentile, mostly Gentile Christians living in the Greco-Roman world. Guess how many days of work they had to, days a week they had to work? All seven. So imagine the trouble at work they would have if they said, hey, by the way, I have to start taking a whole day off of work. Perhaps that's why. These commands aren't found in the New Testament. And many of us may not be able to do this or do this in full in ways we might want to do. I'm sure there are situations that are like that. But I'm also sure that for many of us, we can do this. I'm confident for many of us, we can do this. We just don't know how or we don't think we need to. I've tried to give you some help on the how. I can't make you think that you need it. It might be that you don't trust that God will take care of you if you stopped working for one day out of seven. Or you're so desperate to build whatever you're building to create this image of success and strength so you can never stop. You may be convinced that your situation is just too unique. These things don't really apply to you. Friends, please hear me. Please hear me. You will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. If you sow a life of incessant work with no routine of regular rest, you will reap a life of exhaustion, anxiety, despair, fatigue, health problems, lower levels of productivity, a lack of depth with those around you, those closest to you, and a lack of depth with the Lord. The Sabbath, I think, is meant by God to be a funnel of blessing and sacredness, sacred communion with God into our lives. 
So if you ignore this, you do so to your own detriment. If you're able to, you should. But even if you choose not to, for whatever reason, here's the beautiful news that I've already explained a little bit early. No matter how you end up applying God's wisdom about rest, God will never remove His promise of rest from you. His promise of rest in Christ is yours. No matter how well or poorly you do Sabbath, He will bring us home to rest, even if we fail to rest well here and now. We don't earn His eternal rest. God gladly gives it. Other things that He's gladly given are Sabbath. He loves to give good gifts to His kids. Sabbath is one of those gifts. Sabbathing is our way of responding to His grace, saying to Him that He's Lord of our life, that we trust Him to provide for us, even though there's more stuff we could be doing. We trust that He will take our little work on six days instead of more work on seven, and He will bless it and use it and even provide for us in ways we couldn't have expected. If we'll trust Him, if we'll trust Him, He'll do it. We'll learn through Sabbathing that Christ and Christ alone is the deepest refreshment of our lives. We'll be reminded repeatedly that His creation is glorious and that His love is satisfying. So my sermon title is simple. It's my exhortation to you from Genesis 2, 1 through 3. God rested and so should you. God rested and so should you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds. Help us to see something of the sacredness of the seventh day, the Sabbath day. Give us wisdom on how these things apply to our lives and our situations. Surround us with godly counselors. Help us to think carefully and biblically about these things. Help us to rest in our identity in Christ. Thank you for giving us eternal rest in Christ. Oh, we long for that day where our toil will come to an end. And we will forever, forever, forever be refreshed in your presence. And enjoy the glory of your creation, your new creation. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and bring us home. And in the meantime, please help us to be faithful, to work hard. Protect us from laziness. Protect us from idleness. Help us to work hard on six days and help us to rest well on the seventh. We pray in Jesus' name.